All right, I want to talk to you about people, building the people who built the walls. Nehemiah chapter 7, but I need you to go to first to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. Romans 15 and verse 4. For whatsoever things were written aforetime, obviously in the Old Testament, they were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. If there's anything the devil wants to rob you of, it's hope. And everything in the Old Testament, sometimes it's history, sometimes it's genealogy, sometimes it's, it's uh, war, sometimes it's, it's family, whatever. All those things in the Old Testament are there to learn from to give you patience and comfort and hope. Now, we're back in full swing. Back, we've had some uh, other focuses. We had some great focuses on Missions Month in, April, in August and then on Israel last month because of the focus of Nehemiah sort of allows us to jump onto those things. But we're back in Nehemiah, this time in chapter 7, if you'll turn back there. Nehemiah, just before Psalms and then before Job, are three books Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. But Nehemiah chapter, start back in verse 6, I mean chapter 6. Now, uh, Nehemiah is recording something like a personal journal. Uh, when I was growing up, a lot of people had diaries and journals, but Nehemiah kept a personal journal of all that was happening as he led the Jewish people to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. But this was no ordinary journal, as you know. This is part of the inspired Word of God. And chapter 9 actually is quoted by the Pharisees there in John chapter 6 about how God took care of Israel. But it was written for us to learn. So when we get to chapters 1 to 6, Nehemiah is focusing all his efforts on rebuilding the walls. But Nehemiah... And, and Nehemiah's tireless efforts pay off. If you look in verse 15 of chapter 6, Nehemiah 6 and verse 15 says this, Therefore, sorry, so the wall was finished in the 20 and 5th day of the month Elul in 52 days. Now, I don't know if you, some people have been to Jerusalem and they've seen the walls. It was a monumental task. It was an impossible task to completely reconstruct all of the surrounding wall around Jerusalem. And they did it in 52 days. And it was surprising. The people were surprised they got it done. They, it discouraged their enemies. Go to chapter uh, 6 and verse 16. It says this. 15 says they finished. Verse 16 it came to pass that when all our enemies heard thereof, and all the heathen that were about us saw these things, they were much cast down in their own eyes. They were discouraged. For they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. And, it, and it, it's just wonderful when the devil gets discouraged instead of us, amen? And now the truth is, the people thought, okay, the work is done. We can go on holiday. But the work was not finished. A city, a house is more than brick and stone and glass and doors. A, uh, what we're talking about is people, and people need work, and they needed some attention now. So for the remainder of this book, Nehemiah from, from 7 on, is focusing on 42,060 people that had assembled in Jerusalem. And it's focused on building them firmly on the teaching of the Word of God. They've worked, they've been busy, but now they need to learn and review that they're God's people and what it meant to be God's people. And hence, that's how come I'm focused on 1 Timothy chapter 3.15 that says, uh, if I tarry long that thou... Uh, uh, might us know how thou uh, uh, oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And if you'll go there, I want you to go and look First Timothy now. Chapter 3, and give you a little bit of background, a little taste of what we're going to do this month. First Timothy, chapter 3, in verse 15. Now, verse 14 starts off, and he says, These things write I unto thee, Timothy, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long... If... Now, what would normally hinder or stop Paul from going somewhere? Prison. <laughs> he would get in trouble. 
And uh, so he says, if I'm not able to get there, I've got to write this to you, and I want to make sure that you know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, the church of the living God. So Paul here is, is writing this letter to a young pastor named Timothy, and he's preparing him for the hardships and the heartaches of the gospel ministry. Now, if you look at televangelists, you look at the people on the TV, you think that being a pastor or a preacher is the best thing on, uh, on the planet. Well, they, they're, they're a facade. They're, most of them, I, you'd have nothing to do with if you knew what was really going on. Uh, Paul rarely talks about the benefits of the gospel ministry. He talks about the hardships of it, and he talks about the cost of it. And Jesus even says, if you're even going to follow me, you're going to have to lose your life. So uh, don't respond to God's call because of the benefits. You respond because God wants to use you. End of story. And that's, that's all it is. I just, I just stay faithful because God said he wants to use the likes of me. So here's Paul. He explains what's expected in the book of Timothy, what it means to be a pastor, what it means to preach the Bible and to be faithful at it. And he reminds Timothy that the church he was pastoring in Ephesus, not in Rome, you see, if we thought that Paul was writing to, to the pastors of the church of Rome, wow, that's the church. No, 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 Ephesus. This was, a, this was a, a, uh, uh, a, uh, another place far away from Rome, far away from all the big name Christians. Here was a place, and, and, and Paul calls it the church of the living God. What a title. Now, we often imagine that great churches are in great buildings, have high altars, have skyscraping towers and steeples. We imagine they must hold thousands of people and cost millions to build and maintain, yet not according to the Bible. Uh, go to, uh, you're, you're in Timothy, um, go uh, to the right and find Philemon. A few pages, 1st, 2nd Timothy, for, uh, Titus, and Philemon. Little bitty book. Chapter 1, there's only one chapter, verse 2. Well, he says in verse 1, I'll start off in verse 1. Philemon, chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto a man named Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, and to our beloved Aphia, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy what? So it's, you know... A, a group of two or three people gathering together in the name of Jesus Christ in order to try and live by the Bible is called a church. And it's the church of the living God. It is the house of God. Now, there are four problems with people's view of the church. Number one, most people don't understand what a church really is. They don't believe that it is God's house. They just believe it's just a building. They think that the building makes the church, and the building doesn't make a church. The people do. And the people who try to follow the Lord Jesus make it a great church. Second thing that most people misview about, God, about God's church is they don't know how to behave in the church. Now, we know children run around and they make noise and, you know, they get, uh, um, you know, unsettled or whatever. And we try to get them to behave. But it sure is wrong when adults don't know how to behave. And I don't mean that adults are running around and, and constantly skipping out of their seats and so on and so forth. But most Christian adults, most, don't know how to behave. They don't know how to talk. They don't know how to control their tongue. They don't know how to take care and bless one another, don't know how to look out for one another, don't know how to suffer wrong for the benefit of others. People don't know how to uh, behave in their church. And they don't know what is expected of them in the church. They think, well, don't put any expectations on me, pastor. Why are you here then? Every one of us, from the top down, need to protect the house of God and love the house of God and nurture the builders and work together to build them, not tear it down. That's a wrong view of church is to think that people can be torn down. Now, Nehemiah chapter 7 gives us a great example. If you'll now go back to Nehemiah chapter 7. It gives a great example of building people after the walls have been built. When we get there, we'll pray.
Heavenly Father, as we bow our head, we pray once again that you would um, minister your word by the Holy Spirit to us. God, I am just a scribe. I am just a, a preacher, but I am not a miracle worker. You are. You know the needs of the hearts and the burdens and the impossibilities that are laying on so many people's hearts here this morning. I ask you to intervene. I ask for some miracles. I ask for your blessing and for the grace of, for the grace of God to be greater than all of our weakness. Lord, that you would help convict sinners. And Lord, you would change and forge great Christians from our midst. Lord, because we're nothing without you. And if there was one need we all had, it was Jesus Christ. And there's one need that we still have, it is Jesus Christ. So Lord, today we need you again. We ask that you would speak to our hearts and lift us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, when we talk about what Nehemiah sought from building the walls, he's now changed to building the people. And sometimes we think it's reversed. We sometimes think we need to build people before we can build the wall. And that was not Nehemiah's um, uh, option. He didn't have time to sit down and deal with people. He had to get the job done. So the first thing that Nehemiah did to help the people was he had, a, had something for them to do. He elevated work. Uh, look back in Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 2. Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 2. Now, Nehemiah is writing in his journal, and he says that Hanani, one of my brethren, my brothers, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked him concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And he said unto me, listen to this, and they said unto me, the remnant, those people that are left of the Babylonian captivity, the people that have uh, uh, struggled to survive and have even come back from the captivity, back in Jerusalem, there in the province, are in what? They're in great affliction, and they're in reproach. They're under constant attack from their enemies. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. There are way too many problems and offenses and histories and hurts amongst all the people. And, and Nehemiah didn't have counselors. He didn't have psychologists. He didn't have daytime talk show authorities on how to be happy. But he did, thankfully, have a job to do. He gave them something better. And sometimes there is something that just happens when God just says, get up, let's, let's go do something. And it was a purpose. It was a call. It was uh, a cause. And he called for the people to come together. All these people, if you remember, as we've been back to chapter 1 and chapter 2, he says, let's rebuild. And they says, yes, let's. And that was the best thing that could have happened. He said, let's get to work. You don't need to just stay in bed. You just don't need to, to just stop and relax. And we all need that sometimes. We all need a holiday. But this is not how you should live. You're going to have to have a reason to get up in the morning, and it's called work. Amen. And, and the Bible even says this. And it says, if a man doesn't work... He ought not to eat. It's that clear. Because you're made to work. God made Adam, and he put him in the garden. He says, now work. Amen. It's the best, healthiest thing we could ever do. So Nehemiah got them to do something hard. They looked at all the rubble, and he says, it's impossible. He says, we're going to do it anyway. Now they prayed, and they were believers in God, but they had to work. Go to James. Hold in your place here in Nehemiah. Go to James. James chapter 2. Hebrews, and then comes James chapter 2. James 2.18. You can say, well, I believe the Bible, and I believe in Jesus, but if you do nothing, if, you're not, if you don't have a job, if you've got no ministry, if there's no reason for you to get up besides yourself out of bed, then you're in trouble. The Bible says this, uh, uh, James chapter 2, verse 18, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Well, good, show me thy faith without thy works. Kind of impossible. But I will show thee my faith by my works. So if you've got faith, if you really believe God, there'll be something to get you out of bed on Sunday, and you'll get to church to be able to serve Him, in order to, to, to learn how to obey Him, in order to 
please him in order to help others. That was what Nehemiah was teaching these, these people, saying, guys, I can't fix depression. I can't fix discouragement. I know you went through hell on earth during the captivity. I know you lost family members. I know you, you lost wealth and you lost health. But let me tell you, instead of trying to address all of those things, let's build. And it changed them. It helped. So when, 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 uh, when the devil comes along and defeats you, get up and do something anyway. Do something because work helps. Don't complain about work. Some people, and, and we live in a day where everybody complains about everything. I mean, we have a, 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 a list on our wall, thou shalt, almost, it almost says, thou shalt not complain. And I like, to, I like to try to live by it. But we do complain. Too many people complain about their busy life and their busy schedule. You ought to be glad you have a busy schedule. I'm here to tell you that most of the time, whatever you're having to do, as, as miserable as you may be, it's good for you. Maybe raising little children, it's good for you. Going to college and all the extra hours studying, it's good for you. Uh, working long hours and extra time at work, it's good for you. Trying to fit in three times a week at church is good for you. Burning the midnight oil, taking classes to get a better job is good for you. Getting up earlier than anyone else in your house so you can read your Bible and spend time in personal prayer and worship is good for you. That's not stress. So oh, I'm under so much stress. Everybody is. But you know what's wonderful? Realizing it's because I have a purpose in life. I'm trying to better my life. I'm trying to do something more than just sit and watch Oprah Winfrey or somebody else on television. We need people who don't mind getting uh, their hands on, gritty, back-breaking work because it's good for you. I, I had put up a meme there. Uh, you know, these guys with these big beards, and they've never changed a tire. I know it needs to be spelled T-Y-R-E. But they've never changed a tire in their life. They don't know how to, they don't know how to handle an axe. They've never, they've never gotten their hands dirty more than 10, 10 minutes in their life. And yet they look like a, you know, a lumberjack. You know, it's kind of weird to me. If you don't think, uh, somebody once said this. <laughs> I thought this was funny said, sweat is just your fat crying. <laughs> I thought, boy, that needs to be put up somewhere, amen. If you don't think marriage should be work, and if you don't think soul winning is going to be work, and the friendships, you didn't think that friendship was going to be work, and that Bible study would always be work, and that prayer would usually be work, then you were sorely mistaken because that's the Christian life. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, it's going to cost you about everything. Amen? So he got 42,000 people rallied off of their problems and onto the project, and it helped them. It helps us, too. Some people say, Pastor, you know, why are you asking us to help out with, our, with 12 Weeks to Freedom? Why do you always push for these ministries, because it gets you started on growing. It builds the builders. You are the builders. And the way that I help you build is by giving you something to build first. Now, that's not the only thing we do. Secondly, Nehemiah put key people. Now, go to chapter 7 where we're going through the chapter this today. Nehemiah put key people in charge of key ministries. Look at verse 1. Now, it came to pass. When the wall was built, and I had set up the doors and the porters and the singers and the Levites were appointed. And then he goes on, but he does something really unique. As I said, people needed something to do, and he, he actually had some ministries for people to do. And he had some people in charge of those ministries. Thankfully, you put people in charge. You just don't have things to do, and nobody's running it. So he appointed, which means he assigned he designated, he ordained three ministries here from those people. The first one was porters, those are the gatekeepers, singers and musicians in the temple, and then he talked about Levites, who were the teachers of the law and of the Old Testament. And he said, I've got a job for you to do. You've got to start teaching the Bible. You've got to start praising God. They were the original radio. They were original live stream music. The temple was in a position where the where the, 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 the door of the temple was open and facing out into the city. And there were 
250 singers out, just outside of the door of that temple singing back and forth to each other. That whole building projected into the city and as people went about their busyness in the city, they heard godly music. It was breathtaking. Now when you go into the shopping center, you'll hear things from the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and 80s, naughties, whatever it is. You know, it's, it's one time of the year I'm listening and it's like, oh, I just want to stop because I hear Christmas music. Isn't it wonderful? At least sometime of the year, there's something that is in the background and it lifts your spirit. But they got to hear it. It was a ministry to that whole city. And then the Levites were going around. And, and Nehemiah says, I need you to make sure you're going from town to town, sitting down with the people on the Sabbath and teaching them God's word. Those were ordained ministries. He said, I need these done. Now, more about those in a little while. And then he enlisted a leadership team to work with him. Look at verse 2. After all these things were, after these men and their, their ministries were appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, another guy, the ruler of the palace, which we call the government palace, I gave them charge over Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God above many. And I said unto them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun be hot. And while they stand by, let them shut the doors and bar them. You guys be in charge of those doors opening and closing and appoint watches in the, of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Watch over them. Everyone in his watch and everyone to be over against his house. Now the city was large and great, but the people were few therein and the houses were not built yet. Their own homes weren't all built. And so he says, I need a leadership team. And I don't know if you understand, and I'll talk about this more next week, but in a church, you need more than just the pastor. Nehemiah, who's a type of the pastor really here, couldn't do the job of governing this rebuilt city alone. He needed other people who were able to make hard decisions. He needed people who were not seeking men's admiration, but were interested in doing right and doing the right thing. By the way, he didn't ask for volunteers either. He just said, I need you and you. <laughs> Too many people are, well, I don't feel, I don't want, I know that, I know that, so nothing gets done. So sometimes a leader just says, I need this done. And he looked for people who could handle burdens, who would faithfully serve whatever they were asked to do. And those are rare people, would you agree? There is a rareness about, well, pastor, I don't do windows. <laughs> Did you ever hear that phrase? You know, where... I, uh, it, you know, like if you have a restaurant and you have a waitress and you say, waitress, waitress, and she says, yes. He said, um, I, I haven't gotten the menu. This is not my table. <laughs> and off you go. <laughs> but that's just a small taste of when things need to be done in the church and everybody's saying, my mommy's calling me. <laughs> and they're all gone. And it's just, that's not Christianity. And it's really sad when a pastor looks around and can't find, especially men, who have a burden to help who are willing to carry the burden, who are willing to come up and say, let me help, because there was a day where Moses was standing and he was watching a battle going on between uh, uh, Joshua and, and uh, the Israelites against a, a, a fierce warrior race that, that, was, that was going to wipe out Israel. And Moses got up there and he began, to, he began to pray and he says, oh God, help Joshua lead, help the people win this battle. But he was there for hours and the battle went on and on. And Aaron says he's weakening. Moses is getting discouraged. And he looked at her, H-U-R, uh, not H-E-R, but he looked at her and he says, let's help him. And they came up underneath him and they lifted his arms and they held this old man. He's 80 years old. That's Moses. And he had two men come up under him and hold him up. He says, keep praying, Moses. It's going to work. And they won the battle. And there's, there comes time where you've got to stop thinking, well, pastor's doing fine. He's handling it just fine. He's doing just great. It may look like it, but I need burden bearers too. And that's what a leadership team is. That's what people do. Who are, that's why we have elders. That's why we have ordained elders to work at the top, to carry the burdens, to make the hard decisions. So, he, he, like I said, he didn't ask for volunteers, so he put together a team of three people, himself, his brother Hanani, and another guy named Hananiah. That was all he needed. And he appointed leaders, not lords. You know, the difference between somebody who lords it over you, who's just, you know, just the boss. No, these were leaders. 
men who would carry the heaviest burdens and work the hardest and help lead others out of their rubble life. Now, there were two characteristics that were in these leaders that, that uh, Nehemiah looked for. Now, what do you think are the most important leader qualities? Don't say, raise your hand, just as a rhetorical question, but think about for a minute. What do you think are the most important qualities that should be in a leader? I know, compassion, being progressive, forward-thinking, likable. Sounds like a politician, doesn't it? 99% of all modern leaders of almost every political party and every church in this world would be ignored by God. Because most leaders, most men, most women are weak, spineless power addicts who have no moral compass and only serve themselves instead of others. Amen and amen and amen. Every, uh, uh, every time we have an election, I just brace for the fact that these people got elected promising one thing and as soon as they get in there, they reveal they're of another stripe. These two had two men had two important, powerful qualities. Go, uh, go like there, at, uh, verse two. It says, "I gave that I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem, for he and he's speaking of both of them was a what? What's the first one? They were faithful God to God. They weren't just serving people; they were doing everything for God first. What do you do? You know, Bible says to a wife and says, "Honor your husband like he's who." like you were honoring Jesus Christ. God says to the husband, love your wife and sacrifice for her like Christ loved the church and sacrificed himself. We're always connected with our, how we're dealing with Christ. Go to Colossians, hold in your place in Nehemiah. Go back to the New Testament. The Bible says to servants, honor your masters, your employers, as if you were serving Jesus. Colossians. Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, chapter 3, and verse 22. Servants, you need to obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service, not only when they're watching, as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. Remember that, because we're going to talk about that in a second. Fearing God, not your master. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as if you're doing it to who? As to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. It's often been said the greatest ability is dependability. Not that you're the smartest or that you're wisest, but that you're faithful and that you're consistent. Um, you know, uh, we, we have too many people. We have great starters, but very few finishers. Isn't that true? These men were faithful to God. Uh, I, whether you admit it or not, you like faithfulness as well. Uh, you'd like a dependable doctor, wouldn't you? Well, let's try this. You know, <laughs> I've heard electricity is really great for that problem. <laughs> you want a dependable garter force. You want a dependable rubbish collection service. You would not want to live without that. You want a dependable electricity company, don't you? Amen. You want a dependable grocery store? Well, the Internet is not dependable. Amen. YouTubes are edited and they're conflicting and they're unreliable and, and for the most part, they're wrong. And the news media definitely is not dependable. But God wants dependable men and women to serve. So not only were they faithful to God, dependable, they, were, they feared only God. Now that's a big deal. Proverbs 29, verse 25 says, The fear of man bringeth a snare. You know what that means? It'll trap you every time. If you're worried about what somebody else is going to say or what somebody else is going to think, Facebook. If you're worried about what everybody else is going to think and what, what people are going to think of you and what they think of your position, we were in line. I won't tell you. Uh, but uh, if you're worried about all that stuff, you're going to be robbed. Because John 12, Jesus said this. Sorry, not uh, Jesus. John records this. He says, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers... Many believed on Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they didn't confess him. Lest they should be put out of the synagogues, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. They, they feared whether people would be displeased with them for following Jesus Christ. Amen. 
And if you fear man, you'll be trapped and you'll be robbed of every good thing God ever gave you. Don't you do it. Two, two characters of a great leader is they're dependable. You can always count on them. And they fear only God. You know what the Bible says about a, a godly woman? It says, the woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Amen. Not that she's got great looks and she's got all her family in a row, but that she fears God. Now, not everybody's called to be a Nehemiah. Thank God. Not everybody in this room is called to be a pastor. Amen. That would be stupid. Um, uh, God's not in the business of just calling lots of pastors. But some ought to be Hananias and Hananias who will work alongside the pastors, who are willing to take on the hard things, who don't mind the late hours and don't mind caring about everything that nobody cares about, like souls. And all of us should work under our God-given leaders to help us get evangelism done right. We all ought to be that, like that city full of people who are under now Nehemiah and Hananiah and Hananiah. So I want you to um, look verse, now in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Nehemiah checked people's genealogy for citizenship. Now this is interesting. Chapter 7 and verse 5. And My God put into my heart, back in Nehemiah, to gather together the nobles and the rulers and the people that they might be reckoned by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of them which came up at first and found written therein. And this is what was written. These are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity of those that had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away and came again to Jerusalem, to Judah, everyone to his city. So this is a genealogy that goes back 160 years back to the names of people who had been taken away captive to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. And, you know, when you read a long list like some of these names, and you'll see them, you start to start pronouncing these four, five, and six-syllable names. It might be boring to most modern Christians, but these people were God's bridge. I want you to ponder this for a minute. Here we're going to look at nearly a hundred names. We're not going to read them. <laughs> but these people were God's bridge from the defeats of the past, because it was sin that brought them out into captivity, to all the hopes of the future. These Jews were the living link that connected their ruined historic past with a prophetic future that would bring Jesus Christ into the world. These are the people that have come back and they've rebuilt the city that Jesus is going to walk around in. They've rebuilt the temple. Yes, Jesus is going to have to go and cleanse, but he's going to call it my father's house. These are the people that are going to bridge a defeat and a ruined past, and they're going to start to, pay, uh, to, to press toward a bright future. Now, Nehemiah chapter 7 is actually the Old Testament version of Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, we call it the Hall of Faith. It has all the great people of faith. Well, these people, by faith, came back to Jerusalem and struggling, but they decided to rebuild that city. Now, these were people. They all had names. They all had history. But the question was, were they supposed to be there? Now, uh, everyone comes from somewhere. Many people in our modern population carry little about their family roots. They don't have a, a loyalty to a community. But these returned exiles, we call them expats, you ever hear that phrase? Had maintained their Jewishness, their identity, and they even identified still with the towns. They went back to the town that their great-great-great-grandparents had lived in. They went back to their towns and villages. And they were not ashamed of it. In spite of their, lo their loyalties, they put the good of Jerusalem first. I want you to take, take your Bible, go to Psalm 137. You're in Nehemiah. Go to the right, find Psalm 137. Psalm 137, verse 1. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion, Zion being Jerusalem. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there, they that carried us away captive required of us a song. They wanted us to sing. They that wasted us, ruined us, required of us mirth and laughter, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. 
how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And if I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember Jerusalem, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. That's what they thought about Jerusalem. That's why they were willing to go back. How do you view? I'm not, listen, I hope you look forward to heaven. But they're not just looking forward to heaven. They're looking forward to that place that they call home, that Jerusalem, which is a shadow, an example, a type of a church. I know that countries and cities are melting pots of so, of so many nationalities, but a church is filled with only one nationality, Christians. People who are born again. Uh, you may call yourself any kind of label you want, but there are only two kinds of people in this room, those who are saved, and Jesus says, those who are lost. Either you've been born again the second time or you're still only born once. So there's only one nationality in this church and in any good church, and that's Christian. Amen. Now, every town and every city has lots of different nationalities. But our nationality, our citizenship, is Christ follower. He's born again. So here, Nehemiah knows, and let me teach you something here. Nehemiah decided to check everyone out from the top down to see if they were truly believing Jews. And it's a good thing to do. Go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, they know the lingo, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. How are you living? Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? We can tell the future. And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Not that, it, 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 depart from me, ye that work in me. Not everyone in the church is born again. Does that surprise you? You say, well, I, I come to this church. I must be okay. No. Church doesn't save you any more than a garage makes, a, makes you into a car. A, a, a person in a church is welcome and you're hearing the gospel, but Jesus makes you a Christian. Jesus coming into your heart, washing away your sins. Those who say, you know what, I trust him and I'm going to follow him. That is when you've changed from darkness to light. When you've gone from the, the, the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God's dear son. Go to Jude. We, just before Revelation is the book of Jude. Jude chapter 1 and verse 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the coming of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Why? For there are certain men, like those next three words, what does it say? Crept in unawares. They sneak in, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the, what is the kindness of God, the grace of God, into a wicked lifestyle called lasciviousness, and they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. You wouldn't believe it, but people who come to church don't always believe the same thing. And the same thing was true in that big congregation of people. He said, out of 42,000 people, we better find out which ones belong here. Because not everybody that is here is of us. Some of them creep in unawares. And it's true in Nehemiah, the enemies, there in Nehemiah, the enemies tried to act like, oh, we're just like you. Oh, we believe everything you believe. But they were trying to destroy and bring down the work of God. Um, second, I, I was turning back, but I need you to go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith, not the Catholic faith, not the Baptist faith, but the faith of Jesus Christ. Find out if you really believe in what you're supposed to believe. Prove your own selves. You ought to be able to prove it. So somebody says, 
I'm a Garda. You know, I mean, honestly, I'd say uh, you don't, I don't see any official insignia. I don't see your name on your lapel. Prove it. So everybody who comes along and says, I'm a Christian, would be nice if I, if I saw some fruit, amen? Be able to say, have you ever examined yourself? You may say you're saved, but can you prove it? Prove? No, you're not your own self. Don't you know how that Jesus Christ is in you except you be reprobate? Except you be the biggest fraud ever. So here, Nehemiah, some people creep in like that, Nehemiah got those people to examine themselves and look in a book and see if their name was there. Now I need you to go to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. You know what happens when a person gets born again? Sean, there's probably 25 things that instantly happen even without you know about it when you get born again. But one great thing that happens, you go to Luke chapter 20, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Now, I want you to start back in verse 17. The 70, there were 70 of the disciples. They returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said to them, hmm, Well, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. I was there when he fell. Behold, I give unto you, it is me that gave unto you the power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you, notwithstanding. In this rejoice not that the spirits are subject or obedient unto you, but rather you ought to rejoice because why? Because your names are written in heaven. Revelation calls it the Lamb's Book of Life. And you know, there is a judgment coming in Revelation chapter 20 where everyone that, that never got saved, never they put off getting saved, they neglected to repent and believe the gospel, they ignored the warnings, they ignored all of the signals in their heart and of everybody around them who loved them, and they put it off, and they rejected it maybe one time too many, and then they ended up in hell. And then God will resurrect them, and then we'll have them, and he'll say, how good you live? And they try to show, and they say, well, I did this, and I went to church, and he says, not good enough. And then there's one last thing here in Revelation chapter 20. He says, he calls and he says, is their name in the book of life? And they open up that book there in Revelation chapter 20 and it says, if their name is not written in the book of life, they are cast into the lake of fire. You better get your name written in that book because all the best efforts, all the best prayers, all the best giving, all the best living will not earn heaven. Jesus earned it for you and he asked you just to believe on him, just to trust him, just to accept the free gift that he offers. And if you accept it and you believe it with all your heart, all of a sudden your name's put down in heaven. He helped them next to find their calling. Now I'm very serious. You have to understand that put the fear of God in them. When he said, all right, I need everybody to line up. We've got to find out if you're supposed to be here. And I want to give you a good uh, cross-reference. I wonder if I should do that now. Yes. No. I'll hold on to it because i got it for another good thing. Because we'll come back to that, how terrifying it was, is my name in that, in that book. A lot of people, they, they, they hope by osmosis, they hope by accident they get into the kingdom of God. It don't happen that way. Jesus said to Nicodemus, we sang the song, you must be born again. So he helped them find their gift and calling. Now what do I mean by that? Well, every one of the people that were 42,060 people were... were uh, uh, each building, they had been working on that building, but they also had a gifting. They had a place of ministry. So he had 88 large families being listed. Some of them had like 3,000 in a family, a family name, like Murphy. I mean, how many Murphys are there in Cork? We got one here. But, uh, you know, um, uh, there are a lot of, of names that just, you know, uh, O'Sullivan, and there's just, they would have lots of people in a family. By the way, be very grateful when your family, when you've got your family with you serving God. When, when, when Jesus, sorry, when Paul said to the Philippian jailer, he says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. He's not talking about saving the building. He's talking about the people in it. He's talking about the household, the family. The church is all about families, not just individuals. So there are 88 families listed by name. 
Some were leaders. Oh, let me just stop here. Some were leaders. Some were priests. Some were Levites. Let me see. Yeah, here we are. Some were priests. They had led in the worship of the temple. They handled the sacrifice. Some were Levites. Those were the teachers of the law. They, they helped the priests in any way that was needed. Some were singers and musicians. Some were porters. Those were the gatekeepers. You know, they're kind of important. Now, I know we live in a modern day, but uh, movie censors, you ever remember those? Go back in time. You know, uh, the Irish Film Classification Office now almost does nothing except say, <laughs> you know, 18 or whatever on all these films and stuff. But um, these gatekeepers, they're pretty important. They kind of stop things that ought not to be in your life coming in. And uh, 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 the last line of defense in your home is you, parents. If you don't know what's on your kids' phones, you're not a good gatekeeper. If you're not in control of what's on television, you're not a very good gatekeeper. No longer is anybody going to stop filth from being shown to kids at 3 in the afternoon. Amen. So you've got to be in charge. So there were some gatekeepers there. It was a great honor. You know what, Paul, what David said in Psalm 84? He says, a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I'd, it would be a great honor just to be making sure, boy, that into God's house, into the church, only good things happened. Gatekeepers. Then you had the, maintenance, the temple maintenance crew uh, I'm not going to talk about all of these. They're all listed there back in, uh, if you go back to Nehemiah. They're all listed in the, the temple maintenance crew were, were an amazing um, uh, number, about 7,000 people. They're the temple maintenance and the city maintenance. They were everything. They made sure the city was clean and operated and they were all needed. But here's the big thing. Look in Nehemiah chapter 7 in verse 61. There are those that were, we're going to talk about those that were not listed. Nehemiah 7.61 These were they which went up also from Tel-Mela, Tel-Harasha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer. But they could not show their father's house, nor their seed, their lineage, whether they were of Israel. They were the children of Deliah, Deliah the children of Tobiah, the children of Nekodah, 640 and 2. And of the priests, the children of Habaiah, the children of Kaz, the children of Barzillai, which took one of the daughters of Barzillai, uh, the Gileadite, to wife, and was called after the name. These sought their register. These priests sought their register after those who were reckoned by genealogy. But it was not found. Therefore were they treated as polluted, treated as not belonging, and they were put from the priesthood. And the Tirshatha, the governor, Nehemiah said unto them that they should not eat of the most holy things. They shouldn't be in the temple till there stood up a high, uh, the priest with a Urim and Thummim, which was a way to find out something if you didn't have a written record. But it was a scary thought to not be on the list. Go to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. In verse 9, 22 and verse 9. Jesus is teaching a parable about a, about a marriage supper for his son. In verse 9, Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. Invite everybody. Is that good or bad? Oh, it's great. It's going to be free food. It's going to be a celebration. Invite everyone. Bid them to the marriage. So the servants went out into the highways and gathered together as many as they found, both bad and good, which means not just bad people, but people who were rejects, people not accepted by society. And the wedding was furnished with guests. It was filled with people. Verse 11, when the king came to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was what? Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into the outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus makes it very 
very special. They've gone out, they've invited people, but as people went to the front door and they said, I, I don't know why I'm here, but so-and-so invited me to come. There's supposed to be a wedding here. Can I come in? And they said, yes. And they gave them a wedding garment, gave them uh, a, a, just a simple uh, robe that they, they put on, and they went in. It made the place, because all these people looked pretty bad. They smelled pretty bad. They, they just, it just made the wedding look beautiful. So they put on these garments, and they went inside. Now, there's nothing wrong with inviting everybody to Christ. But there was somebody there who came in the back door, who came in and says, I don't need that robe. I don't, I don't want to be embarrassed wearing what everybody else says. I want to wear what I want to wear. And so he's sitting there, and he's sampling the grapes, and he's enjoying the, the bread, and, he, and the king comes up to him and says, how'd you get in here? And he couldn't answer. And the king stepped back and says, I don't know what he's here for. He may be a thief. He may be a robber. Get him out. Amen. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but if you came down and you sat down for dinner and you've got, you got your wife and you've got your, your mom and, and, and your dad there and you've got your sister and you've got your brother and you've got your three kids and, and then you've got two people who you don't know. <laughs> and they're just sitting down ready to eat dinner. That's how it felt. You go, how'd you get in here? Oh, the door was open, man. <laughs> well, it goes very deep because the picture that Jesus is teaching is you can't just walk into heaven. You need to wear a robe of righteousness, which is a tremendous picture of I don't get into heaven wearing whatever I want. I must exchange my filthy rags for Christ's righteousness, and I wear his righteousness. And when I come in to God, I look beautiful now. I look washed. I look clean. Amen. And I came in the front door. Jesus said, I am the door. Whosoever cometh in by me shall be saved. Who comes in any other way is a thief and a robber, Jesus said. So, anybody who says, well, you know, if I can't get into the front door, I'll get into the side door. No, you won't. If your name is not written in that book of life, if you're not on the register, if you have not accepted the righteousness of Jesus Christ and gotten your name in that book, Soon as you say, well, if I get up to St. Peter at the gate, he's not at the gate. Jesus is. The Bible says, as, as it is appointed to men once to die, and after this, the judgment. And judgment will fall on you. If you're not getting in by Christ's righteousness and you're trying to get in your own way, you're not going to get in. And you'll be speechless. You will be able to explain a thing. As if these 642 were imposters, intruders, stalkers. To expect to be welcomed, but instead we're unknown. They, they said, surely we're welcome. Of course you are, but we don't know you. Jesus even said it there in Matthew chapter 7. He says, depart from me, I don't even know you. And I believe the most miserable people are those that only hope they're saved. I believe that. I, I, I wouldn't want to hope it. I want to know it. I would not want to hope that I'm married. <laughs> hope I'm married. <laughs> the poison hasn't worked yet. I want to know that I'm married. I want to know that it's done deal. I, I want to know that I'm forgiven. Amen? I don't want to live with the burden of, oh boy, that memory just keeps coming back. That, that, that hurt, that sin, that wickedness that I was involved in, whatever it is, I want to know it's washed, it's cleansed, it's gone. Amen? I want to know that I want to know. Lastly, me and I have rebuilt worship, but we're going to talk about that next week. Just by way of conclusion, let me say this. Nehemiah's efforts are a good pattern for us in this church. What I mean by that, I constantly work to get about 120 people into a strong, healthy church. What do I do? Well, I try to elevate work. I try to give everybody something to do. You often hear me talking about serving and ministering and working for the Lord because that's healthy. That's what makes a strong church? By the way, just because I said conclusion doesn't mean pack up. <laughs> anyway, secondly, expect me to put key people in charge of leadership. I need people who help me. And I'm looking, believe me, I'm looking for people who handle ministries and do their best. 
create leadership teams. It's very important that we have, that we have Andrew, that we have people who work with pastor and can do just what pastor does. Amen. Checking true citizenship. I look for new birth. I may come along to you and I say, are you saved? Don't be offended. I just want to make sure you know what it means. My whole job is not to just educate you. My whole job is to get you so that you deal with Jesus Christ and get forgiven and live for him now. I want to help you find out your gifting and calling. That's, that's, you're, you're not just saved to sit. Amen. You're saved to serve. You're saved to do something. But there are the unlisted. People who are missing out. The only hope they're saved. The only hope they're going to get into heaven. And these things, John says, have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you want to, do you want to rebuild your home? Start with yourself. Are you born again? Is your name in the birth register? Don't worry about anybody else. Look at your own heart and examine yourself and say, John 1.12 says this. It says, uh, but as many as received him, not the wafer, but received Jesus Christ right into their hearts. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. To them that believe on his name. Are you in church? Not just here physically, but I mean all in. Are you passionate? Does Sunday ever thrill you? I can't make Sunday build you. Well, let me say it this way. I can't make Sunday exciting for you. Let me say it that way. You make it exciting or you make it dead. Church ought to be a place where you say, I've got to get there. It's the place I've got to be. It's, it's what I need. Do you have anything? No, hold on here. Do you have anything that you're helping with here? Do you participate in any kind of ministry? Do you, um, are you, uh, you, you need to decide to lead your family by doing the things that count with God. So your family, well, my family's not doing this. doesn't matter. What are you doing? Lead your family by doing things that count with God. And then secondly, then you start working on your family. Then you start getting every person in your family saved. There's nothing more important than winning your husband, your wife, your kids to Christ. Get them into church. But you first go. It's kind of sad when a parent says, you go to church. No, no, no. You lead your family by you doing right first. Then get them into church. Get them free. Get them living for God. Get them working with you. Of something about you. Take your kids with you soul winning. Take your wife with you. Get involved as a family in a ministry. And God will rebuild your home. You see, if we do the right things, you say, how's this going to work? I have no idea. I just know it does. If I get my heart right, and I look out for my family and try to get them into the church and into working, doing some ministry and serving others, it just glues us. It just helps us. It doesn't mean it's ever going to be easy. Don't you ever think that all this is, oh, the blessing? No, the blessings come later. But the work is marvelous. Father, we pray, Lord, God, that you'd encourage us through a chapter in the book of Nehemiah that after the walls had been built, the people needed to be worked on. And it, it was marvelous already. You had rallied 42,060 people together. But they still had a lot of problems. Their own homes were not built yet. Their own families were still a mess. So you showed Nehemiah trying to help people find a, a place of service. You saw people that were already ready to serve, and you made them leaders. And that's what a church does. And if, if we would just look at our place our group, and go, that's what we need here. We need everyone, not 20% doing 80% of the work, but 100% doing the work of the ministry for the gospel's sake, for Christ's sake. But the most sad thing is, there are always people who, on the sidelines, they're just on the fringe, and they're looking in, no matter how much I plead, I ask them and I beg of them, please get in. I'm going to ask you to become a member of a church with every head bowed, every eye closed now, please. I'm not asking you to do some great act 
give some great amount of money. I'm not asking you to do anything except understand you're lost and without hope, without God. You can be religious and not know Jesus Christ in your heart of hearts. People know about him in their head, but they've never been born again in their hearts. And I plead with you, come on in. The water's fine. Come on in. Christian life is worth it. Come on in. Trust Christ. Follow him. The disciples were doing first their own thing, and then Jesus was passed by, and he'd say, come, follow me. And they left everything. I don't know what it's going to cost you to follow Jesus. I'm going to ask you to make a decision to do it today. Believe with all your heart. He loves you, and he died for you. He rose again the third day to show he has the power to carry you all the way home. Will you let him? Dear Christian, you may know that you know that you're saved, but don't stop there. Let's, let's, let's enjoy and, and, and build the church of God. Don't just leave it for others. But this month, help us to find our place. In Jesus' name, amen.